Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11 tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. We're doing a series on Tuesday night through the book of 2 Corinthians. Two things really stick out about this letter of Paul to the Corinthians. One is, it's a letter where Paul is sharing the confidence that we can have and the confidence that God wants us to have as we live the Christian life. Many Christians lack confidence in living for the Lord, and 2 Corinthians speaks to that. Also, 2 Corinthians is probably Paul's most personal letter. He sort of unveils for us or takes the veil off of his own personal struggles and ministry and life and service for the Lord. And he does that again here tonight in this passage we're going to look at, which is really the last half of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul's going to talk to us about what motivated him in his ministry, how he modeled his ministry, uh, what were the miracles that he saw in ministry, and what was the message of his ministry. Now, I I hope you'll sort of Zero in on 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 11 through 21 tonight, because we're going to be jumping around in that passage. We're going to just be in that passage, but we're going to be jumping around in that passage, because one of the things you learn as we read and study the Word of God is when when the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God to these folks and they wrote it down, it wasn't necessarily written down in an outline form. Uh... It was written as the Holy Spirit led and flowed the revelation to these people to write it down. And so a lot of times when I go in, sometimes even people ask me, how do I approach a passage? I approach every passage sort of like a puzzle. And I explode the puzzle first before I ever start to put it back together again. Don't be afraid to go into a passage of scripture and basically explode it and let all the pieces fly. You know, and then begin to put it back together and see, because it's never usually written in like everything that's about that particular thing is said in those verses. And then in these verses, everything about that is said there. Very rarely do you find that in the Bible. So you and I have to go back and sort of group it together as we find it through the flow of the passage. And we see that here tonight. Let's also remember before we dive into the passage tonight, the context. Last week, we talked about what happens to us when we die. And we talked about the reality of eternity and how the reality of eternity should affect our everyday lives. Uh, how does the reality of living forever How does that affect us on an everyday basis? So with that foundation, as he ends verse 10, he comes into verse 11 with these words. Therefore, because all will die, and because eternity awaits every human being, the writer of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto men once to die. And after this, the judgment, Paul says, therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. The first motivation in Paul's ministry was the fear of the Lord. And be careful as a Christian not to water that down. We don't like to talk about the fear of the Lord very much in churches and amongst Christians today. 
But that was a high motivation for Paul for this reason. If you understand what the term means, it's, it's a healthy fear. It's something that's good. You and I have healthy or should have healthy fears of things today. And that shouldn't be a bad thing. That actually should be a good thing. That actually preserves us. It saves us. It delivers us many times from getting ourselves into terrible situations. And obviously this word carries with it the implication of respect and reverence. And so Paul's basically just saying, guys... If we truly know that God is serious about this, that, that this, this is not something he's kidding about. It's not like somewhere along the line, God's going to change his mind and go, I'm just kidding. Whether you accepted Christ or not, just everybody can come to heaven. No, Paul's saying, not at all. If you and I know that God is dead serious about what he has revealed, and he's not going to change... And he is totally going to carry through with everything that he said. Then Paul says, shouldn't that motivate us? Shouldn't that motivate us to live for the Lord and serve the Lord? And we're going to get trying to reach people for the Lord. Because whether we like it or not, whether we want to deny it or not, or live as if it's not coming, death is coming. Eternity is coming. And the way you and I live our lives down here on this earth is going to affect our eternity. And it's going to affect our role and responsibility in eternity. And whether we have Christ or not is certainly going to affect what our eternity looks like. And so Paul is basically saying, because I know the Lord is serious about this, because I know he's not going to change his opinion. Because I know that what he has said about eternity and all of that can be counted on, then I need to take it serious as well. There's another motivation, though, in Paul's ministry. Look at verse 14. It is the love of Christ. He says that controls us that drives me, that holds me, that grips me. And notice Paul doesn't say it's our love for Christ. He says it is the love of Christ in my life. In other words, it's not even so much me getting to this point yet where I'm trying to demonstrate how much I love God. He says it's the fact that God's quality of love is actually inside of me and that's what grips me and it is a love that loves other people and puts others above ourselves. it's a selfless sacrificial supernatural love like christ romans 5 5 the bible says that god poured out his love into our hearts god poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We have God's kind of love within us. We have God quality love within us. That's why God can command us to love. That's why God can tell us to love our enemies. Because we have the capacity through the Holy Spirit who is given to us to be able to love like God loves. Therefore, we can see people as God sees them. And Paul says, this is what gripped me. 
Not only the fear of the Lord, knowing that the Lord is dead serious about these things, and these things are true, and they're real, and they're going to happen, so therefore I should live as if they're going to happen. It should affect the way I live. But God's love... The love that He's poured into my life grips me, drives me, holds me, controls me every day. Every day, Paul said, as I lived my life, I lived it having God's love truly control me. Those were the motivations for Paul. If you as a Christian are looking for a couple motivating factors things to get you up and and get your life going again and getting it going in the right direction and and being willing to step out and serve and minister and put yourself out there like we talked about Sunday, there's no greater motivations in the world than the two that Paul used in his own life. They were the fear of the Lord, verse 11, and the love of Christ, verse 14. Paul also, though, in this passage, shares with us sort of the model of, for his own ministry that I think we can follow as well. Notice back up in verse 11, he says, we try to persuade people. We try. We can't force people to come to Christ. We can't force Christians to grow in Christ. But we can try to persuade people. And very interestingly, the word persuade means to make friends of or to win others' favor, to build bridges with others. That's what the word persuade means. So that's why, folks, just very frankly, it's very ineffective for a Christian to go up to a non-believer and say to them, you're going to go to hell unless you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Is that true? Yeah, but is that trying to persuade them? Is that trying to win their favor? Is that trying to build a bridge? Is that trying to make friends with them? No. And Paul says the model for ministry needs to be that we need to be persuaders. We need to live in such a way that people actually want what we have. Isn't that what Peter says in 1 Peter 3? When he says, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord and be always ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Paul, Peter's basically saying, you and I can live our Christian life in such a way that it is so attractive that people will actually come up to us and say, I got to ask you, what, what makes you tick? How can you handle life the way you do? How, how, can you, how can you manage the way you do? How can you face what you're going through with such joy or hope? Or, and that's being persuasive. And that's what Paul says. Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade men. Now folks, we can't make anybody. And you can't shove it down people's throat. That's not being persuasive. You can't force people. But we can talk and live and act in such a way that we can be persuasive to others. A second thing we see here in verse 12, it's what is in the heart that matters. 
I don't want to take the time tonight to go down through, you know, reading verse 11 and 12, but basically Paul's saying the way we conducted ourselves around you guys was to try to show people that it's not about externals. It's not about outward appearance. At the end of verse 12, he says, it's what is in the heart. That's what really matters. That was the model for Paul's ministry. Not just trying to persuade and be persuasive, but to to everywhere he went, it was always about the heart. It wasn't about externals. It wasn't about outward things. It was always the condition of people's hearts because he knew and God knows that if the heart is right, the externals and all the outward things will eventually take care of themselves. Where is our heart? And Paul always focused on that. He didn't get caught up like many do today, and and they did in Paul's day, with dealing with externals and appearances and outward things. That will always trip us up. That will always hinder us as we try to persuade other people, whether they're Christian or not. But if we look at the heart, if we pray about the heart, If we focus on internal things, that's a great model for ministry. Then notice in verse 13, I love this. Being out of one's mind. There's a model. But notice what Paul says. Some people consider us out of our mind and when we, when it's for God. And I think balancing that with what Paul's going to say here in a minute about being of sound mind, here I think is what Paul's saying. Another model of ministry is this. Not always caring about what other people think. Because there are going to be some who, if you're really living for the Lord, the way the Bible says Christians should be living for the Lord, they're going to think you're crazy. They just are. They're going to think you're wacky. You do. You go to church on Tuesday night? You know, you read your Bible every day. You pray all the time. I mean, and the Bible clearly says that spiritual things are going to seem foolishness to the natural man before they come to know the Lord. And so there is that. Don't be afraid ever to, you know, be labeled a Jesus fanatic. It's okay to be crazy for God. But Paul balances that in the very next verse, or the very next phrase, by saying, but we also understand we need to be of sound mind for you. And what Paul's basically saying is, I understand that as a Christian, again, going back to being persuasive, I have to carry myself and I have to live in such a way that is relatable even to an unsaved person. I can't be so far out there and so, so way out there that I can't bridge between me and an unbeliever or even between me and another Christian. I've got to be relatable. I've got to appear like I'm in my sound mind and that that there's an acceptance there of who I am, even though they might not understand it all, they at least respect it. And I'm not coming across like some crackpot or I'm not coming across in an obnoxious 
turning people off way. Paul says that is a model for his ministry. Yes, some will always say you're crazy by the way you live. But hopefully knowing that you're trying to also be persuasive, as you try to come across to people, you will come across always like you're of sound mind, as Paul did. And then finally, Paul says in verse 16, it's not about judging from an outward point of view. He says, I had to learn a hard lesson. He says, I used to judge and acknowledge people from an outward point of view, even Jesus. And he said, I realized by judging people from an outward point of view, I even got Jesus wrong. I concluded that Jesus was not the Son of God because I was just looking at things from an external, human, earthly standard way of thinking. And Paul said, I blew it. That's why Jesus had to appear to me on the road to Damascus and straighten me out. And Paul says, we've got to carry that through to our own ministry and our interaction with other people. We cannot look at others from strictly a earthly standard or human or outward point of view. Because going back to what we said before, it's about the heart. And you may look at someone outwardly and go, just by the way they look. I bet they're not a very committed Christian. And you may look at someone else who looks much different than they do, and you may conclude, boy, I bet they're spiritual. And you know what? You and I might have it totally wrong. Totally wrong. Because it's not about making judgments based on outward appearance. It's also not about making judgments about people based on Are they too far gone? There's no hope for them. They'll never change. They'll never come to Christ. That Christian will never get their act together. Paul's saying, we need to be careful. That is not a model for how we should minister and interact with other people. Judging them strictly from an outward point of view. In fact, in light of that, We now move to the miracle of ministry. We've talked about the motivation of ministry, the model for ministry. Now I want to talk about the miracle of ministry, verse 17. Where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Folks, this is language of miracle in the New Testament. If you study this in the Greek language, this is, this is language of miracle. And so what basically Paul is saying is, from God's perspective, anyone can change. Anyone can change. Any Christian can start to change. Any non-believer can come to Christ. Anyone can change. Because it's Christ who does the changing, and all that they need to do is open up their heart to Christ. And even as a Christian, please be encouraged by this. Every time that you go through the process of changing yourself to be more like Jesus, just like Paul said, because this is a process of becoming a new creation where old things gradually pass off and other things come on, 
Every time that happens in our life, that transformation even in a Christian's life, do you realize from God's perspective, that's a miracle? So when Christians today say, I wish God would do more miracles, He doesn't do miracles like He did when He walked the earth and like He did in the Old Testament. God would say, really? Because God would say, Everyone in this room is a miracle. You're a miracle of God if at any time in your life you accepted Christ as your Savior. That's a miracle. And as a Christian, every step of your spiritual growth, where you are passing off old things and bringing on new, that is miracle taking place. So, what God, I think, would say to us is, it's not that I'm not doing miracles. It's that you all aren't opening up your eyes to the miracles that's happening around you all the time. And you are a walking miracle. So Paul says, don't ever forget the miracle of ministry. And the miracle of ministry then reminds us that anyone can change. We cannot look at people, any of them, and go... They're beyond hope. They'll never change. I realize from a human perspective, that's true. But remember what the Word of God says. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. And the only thing that's going to trigger that change or that can trigger that change is Christ. And then all bets are off. Anything can happen. Any change in any Christian's life, any change in anyone's life can happen when Christ is invited in. But I also personally think there's another miracle of ministry here in this passage. And that is, notice what Paul says in verse 18. That God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Really, God? The ones that have been sort of restored into a relationship with you, you're now turning around and you're using the very ones that you have reconciled to yourself now to go out and be ministers to try to bring others to yourself? Really? That's your plan. Yeah, that's God's plan. And to me, that's a miracle that God would allow us, fallen, frail, fragile Christians, to be the plan of reaching and impacting this world for Him. That's a miracle that He does through us. And that's why we need to just be so in tune with God to say, God, thank you for allowing me to be a minister that you can use to impact other people's lives. Notice what Paul said in verse 20. He reiterates this point when he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are privileged representatives. And let's not forget about an ambassador. That even today when an ambassador is sent from, say, our country, the United States, to a foreign country, they're not an ambassador of that country. They're an ambassador to that country. They better never forget what country they are representing. And that's true of us as Christians. 
See, God sends us into this world, but this world is not our home. We talked about that last week. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship, Paul says, Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing through. This is not our home. But we are on this planet where the God of this world is certainly working so that we can be His ambassadors on foreign soil to represent Him to other people who do not know Him. And that's why it blows me away too in verse 20 where Paul goes on to say, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. On Christ's behalf. In other words, do you realize that everywhere we go, every conversation we have, it's as if Jesus wants us to be His representative, His mouthpiece to all these people, Christian or not, it doesn't matter. We are living on behalf of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. And so Paul wants to remind us of that. No wonder Paul lived a life he did. He was motivated by the fear of the Lord and also the love of Christ. His model for ministry was always about trying to persuade people, to make friends, to win their favor, to build bridges. He did it because he knew that his God was in the miracle working business. And if anybody knew that, Paul did. Paul remembered he was Saul. That he was the chief persecutor of the church. He talks about that many times. He, he reminds all of us about his past. And basically he says in the word of God, God saved me as an example. That if, if he can save me and use me, he can save anybody and he can use anybody. And I've said that about my own life for years. If God can use Jeff Royce, God can use anybody. Because we're miracles. We're miracles. And we are in the business of miracles every day. Don't live your life as a Christian asking God to show you a miracle. Acknowledge and recognize that you are amongst miracles and you are a miracle every day. And then finally, Paul shares the message of his ministry. What was the message that he wanted to get across as he lived his life? Well, again, this is going to be disjointed. This isn't going to be in the order that it was presented by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. But let's start in verse 20, where Paul says, after we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And the word reconciled literally means to change or exchange. In other words, There's a relationship that needs changing. There's an exchange that needs to happen so that this relationship becomes what it needs to be and should be. That's what reconciliation is. But I want to back up a little bit. Paul doesn't go into this here. But in order for us to give the message of be reconciled to God, to to encourage people to change of how they look at God, how they view God, what their relationship or lack of it is to God, and even for Christians to encourage all of us to change 
and become that new creation that God saved us to be, we have to be willing to go back a step and go, there must be something deficient or wrong, and that's why I need to change. That's why I need to be reconciled. See, that's, that's where, especially for the unbeliever, the person without Christ, we need to go back a little bit further and teach them what the Bible teaches about sin and the fact that we are born sinners. And therefore, there is a chasm, if you will, between us and God. That we and God are not on the same page. We are alienated, Paul says, from God. And the only way then that we and God can be back on the same page and in relationship with each other is if we are willing to change. God doesn't have to change. God hasn't done anything. God is the perfect, sinless God He's always been and He's always there where He's always been. We're the ones who moved away from God. We're the ones who said, I want to go my own way and do my own thing. And so in order for us and God to be back on the same page and in right relationship with each other, we need to be reconciled. We need to be restored. There needs to be a change in that relationship. And we've got to be the ones willing to change. Others have to be willing to change. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's what it really comes down to. Not can God change a person or change a situation. Are we willing to change. And that was the primary message that Paul built on in his ministry. He would tell people, be reconciled to God. Notice second, the next major thing in verse 18, back there, where Paul says, he reconciled us to himself through Christ. The only way a person can be reconciled or brought back into a right relationship with God is through Christ. Now, in our society today that is so pluralistic, where, you know, you have people saying there's many ways to God and there's many ways to be reconciled to God and all that, I realize the teaching of Scripture is not, you know, politically correct and and doesn't get a lot of traction today. But this is God's truth. And we're not going to stop teaching it just because it's not popular. The only way a person can be reconciled to God is through Christ. Notice how many times Paul hammers this home. Notice in verse uh, 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And then, again, back to verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's only in Christ. There is no other way to be reconciled to God, to get back in right relationship with God, unless you and I are willing to come through Christ. He's the change agent. He's the one that makes it all possible. I cannot come any other way but through Christ. That's the way God designed it. And that was the message of Paul's ministry. Be reconciled to God. And if you really want to be reconciled to God, 
It has to be through Christ. Notice what he says in verse 14 and 15. Christ died for all. And then he repeats it again in verse 15. He died for all. Because the next message Paul wanted to get through to every human being was, it doesn't matter who you are. Jesus didn't just die for the elect. Sorry. He died for everyone. So that everyone has the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Paul wanted to make sure that got out. Whosoever will. God so loved the world. So, yes, a person can only be reconciled to God through Christ. That is pretty exclusive. There's only one way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me, Jesus said. But, all can come. All can come. And the Bible clearly says there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue in heaven who have come to God through Christ because He died for all. No one's excluded. No one's beyond the love and grace and God's ability to change and forgive. No one. He died for all. The next message that Paul gave was it in verse 15. He died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. In other words, Jesus didn't just die and give us eternal life and get us into a right relationship with God so that our sins would be forgiven. We've got our ticket to heaven and now I can live my life the way I want to. No. No, if we understand the message of the Bible, then as Christians, we have to understand that after I'm saved, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And I am not to live for myself. That's not what it's about. He didn't save me just to forgive my sins so I could go to heaven one day and be with Him. He saved me so that I could start living for Him right here and now. And experience the abundant life that He came to give me right here and now. Not wait till I got to heaven to experience it. And too many Christians, they've got their salvation ticket in their pocket and their their mindset is, my life's mine. I'm going to do and live and make the choices I want to make. I'm not going to consult God. I don't really care what God thinks. I don't care what God wants me to do. My life is mine. And they totally miss why Jesus saved them and died for them in the first place. The next message that Paul gives is over in verse 21. Some good theology here. Christ did not know sin. The word means he had no acquaintance with. Totally foreign to Jesus. 
Jesus is revealed as the perfect, sinless, spotless, without blemish Lamb of God. There is no sin in Christ, never has been, never will be. He knew no sin. But the next message from Paul in verse 21 is, He was provided to be a sin offering for us. When the Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin, it doesn't mean that Jesus then became a sinner. Jesus did not become a sinner when He became a human being. He never became a sinner. But in the language here that Paul is using, he's saying Jesus became our sin offering. He became our scapegoat. He became our substitute. He's the one that took the penalty for our sin. He's the one that took the punishment for our sin. He's the one that took the wrath of God for us so that we would never have to experience it ourselves. That was the message of Paul. I mean, what you have here in 2 Corinthians 5, you got the gospel, folks. You could go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and lead someone to the Lord. It's all here. The next message Paul gives is this. In Christ, verse 19, God does not count people's trespasses against them. In Christ... God does not count people's trespasses against them. Again, going back to in Christ. So don't miss this. When God looks at a Christian, He does not see you as a sinner. Did you catch that? (laughs) When God looks at you, He does not see your sin. He sees you robed in the righteousness of Christ. He does not count your trespasses. By the way, the word count means God doesn't even sit around going, so I'll I'll use it, so, so Jeff sins again and does something that I've done lots of times. God doesn't go up there in heaven and go, Jeff, that's the 4,363rd time you've done that particular sin. God doesn't do that. The word count literally means to dwell on or meditate. Think about it. If anybody has the memory to be able to remember everything that's ever been done to him, it'd be God. And yet God chooses, because we are in Christ, not to sit up there counting our sin. Oh, that Jeff. There's another one. Oh, I didn't know. He doesn't do that. That's why it's so unchristlike of us as Christians to meditate on and dwell on the sins that others do to us. Because God doesn't do that with us. He doesn't sit up there just rolling over in his mind all the bad things that I've done. That's not God. In fact, the Bible says he throws them into the depths of the sea and he chooses to forget about them. What a great thing. In Christ, 
God does not count our trespasses against us. Remember that. That's part of Paul's message. That that should give us a, a whole different way of looking at God and looking at life. And instead of us focusing on our failures, when we do fail, confess it, get ourselves back up, and start living for God again. Instead of allowing the enemy to beat us down and discourage us. God's not counting our sins against us, so why should we? And then the final message, back in verse 21. So that in Him, in Christ, we would become the righteousness of God. Basically, Paul's saying, here's why Jesus saved us. Not just so our sins would be forgiven and we would be on our way to heaven. He saved us so that we could begin to become what God created us to be. That's what the righteousness of God is. That, that's a real biblical term, but basically it just means that God, when He created us as our Creator, He designed us a certain way. He, he created us with a specific personality and gifts and talents and abilities. And he has a design and purpose for our life. And the only way we will begin to be who He created us to be is when we're living in Christ and allowing Christ to be the center of our life. That's when life really begins. That's when we begin to even see ourselves in a different way. When we do not define ourselves the way we've defined us or the way others defined us, but we learn to define ourselves by the way God has defined us and is defining us. And this was the message of Paul's ministry. This was the miracle of Paul's ministry. This was the model of Paul's ministry. This was the motivation of Paul's ministry. On Sunday, we're going through the book of 2 Timothy, and I've shared with people that if you're willing as a Christian to sit under the teaching of Paul in 2 Timothy, it's just like being mentored by Paul. It's like you're sitting in the classroom with Paul himself and he's teaching you about the Christian life. Well, guess what? If you want to learn about serving the Lord and about ministry, then 2 Corinthians is your book too. Because it's as if you couldn't go to any Bible college or seminary that's going to be more effective in helping you be more effective in serving God and ministry than becoming very familiar with what Paul has said in 2 Corinthians. Because in a sense, Paul is basically laying out for the Corinthians and for all Christians down through time his own personal life and ministry. And he's laying it all bare. And he's saying, here's the things I did wrong. Here's the things I learned from that. Here's the things I did right. Here's the things I think you should consider. And Paul lays it all out there for us. It's there. It's in there. We just need to dive into a book like 2 Corinthians and absorb it into our being. 
and let God take the truth that he revealed through Paul and taught Paul to become real in our lives. So that we, knowing the fear of the Lord, seek to live our lives to persuade others to be reconciled to God and change. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the miracle, the miracle that you've done in our lives. If we are here tonight and we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, then God, we are a walking miracle of you. We didn't save ourselves. You saved us by your miracle working power. And every day that we live and become more like Jesus, every day old things are passing away and things are becoming new and different in our lives, that's a miracle. And we need to acknowledge it as such. Instead of looking for you to do miracles, we need to acknowledge the miracles you're already doing. And we need to also, God, be reminded that it's a miracle that you have chosen us, that you have committed to us, that you've entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That your plan is to use those of us who have been reconciled to you through Christ to go out into this world and persuade others to come as well. God, eternity is real. And we don't know because life is so fragile. Just as we've been reminded again by the terrible natural disasters that are sweeping through our country. Those people in Oklahoma had no idea that when they left for work or school, that that would be their last day on earth. God, we need to live in light of eternity. And instead of eternity being something so far away and so distant that it never affects our life, Paul carried the idea of eternity with him every day. Every day, Paul lived his life and interacted with others in light of eternity. Help us to follow that great example. Use us, God. Grow us, God. Help us to see what you're doing in our life. Encourage us by the small victories. So often, Lord, we get discouraged because... We're not maybe where we want to be as soon as we want to be. But Lord, remind us that you work in our life and in the life of a local church like the Oasis, little by little. Help us to acknowledge and accept and celebrate the small victories 
on our way to being more like Jesus. And help us to acknowledge and accept and celebrate the small victories in others' lives on their journey to becoming more like Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before